Turn your Bible to Esther chapter 1. For those of you here who were here in Sunday school, uh, you got a head start. Uh, for those of you who weren't, I'm sorry, you're going to have to get the tape or something if you want to, you know, catch up the difference. Uh, you know, those things kind of happen. And uh, I was asking the Lord a little bit about what to do tonight, and I, I think he wants me to continue on in the book of Esther, so we'll do that. So just as a recap, uh, a little bit about the book of Esther, there's some amazing things about it. One is it's one of only two books that have a woman's name in it in your entire Bible. And on top of that, Esther is the only book in your Bible where the word God and Lord does not exist. You will not find it anywhere. But if you read the story of Esther, God is so filled in there, you could have inserted his name anywhere you wanted to in there for the most part, especially as you get closer to the later parts of the of the book. And it's amazing in a book that has a woman's name that doesn't have his name in it anywhere, how much God has in this book. I'll let you know, as I was studying it, because I did this for our adult Sunday school class up at Faith Baptist Church, I was surprised about how many prophetical things there are in the book of Esther. I mean, I've read it before, and yeah, I knew some of them, but I learned a lot more going through it again, having to study it, because, you know, they kind of expect you when you show up, you actually did a little bit of study beforehand. And, uh, you know, well, because you don't want the people, everybody out there to know all the answers better than you do. You know, it's like I took a class in college once where their teacher was about a half a week to a week ahead of us reading the book that we were supposed to learn from her from. So we would go, hey, we have a question. She goes, I'll get back to you next week on that kind of a thing. Nobody likes that. And I, now on the other hand, I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I'm going to try to get you some of the things that I got out of the book of Esther. So in Esther chapter one, we're going to go down to verse seven. Uh, let me back up and give you the context. The king here had a huge party. It was probably a marriage supper. And it was all of the bigwigs. I mean, I don't know who the bigwigs are down here, but all the movers and shakers, all the politicians, all the big businessmen, all the movie stars of the day, whatever they had there in uh, in that kingdom of media Persia, that's who was at this big party in Shushan the palace. So that'd be like Washington, D.C. for us. Or if we're just looking at Washington State, that would be Olympia. And all of them were there, and they had this whole party that went on for about three years. And then at the end of it, it's everybody in the capital from the poorest person that lived in that city all the way up to the richest. And one of the things that I brought out was the fact that when's the last time you ever saw a politician spend a day making sure everybody in their city was fed? I mean, they talk about all sorts of things, but I don't see any of them being involved in directly feeding a whole city, everyone. Not just certain people, not just the people in their district that would vote for them. It was everybody. And then um, as part of this, then we get into Esther chapter 1, verse 7, and it says, And they gave them to drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and the royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law, and none did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. So the first thing I want you to see here is it's talking about diverse cups. That means every cup, there was a cup for everybody. Every single one of them was different. Every single one of them, everybody in the entire city came together. Everybody got a gold cup that was different than the next one. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you ever go into another church and look around, um, you're not going to see all the same people you see here. So if you come up to Faith Baptist Church in Chalice and you start looking around, now there are times Bob has come up there. I, I'll admit that. But Bob is not there every Sunday. There are not two Bobs that look identical that, that are, you know, can do all the things with the HVAC and all the other stuff that he does. Although, you know, we would be happy to have someone like him. But nonetheless is you're not going to see him there. You're going to see him here. And that's how God looks in each and every one of us. We're diverse. We're individuals. God formed us not only as an individual, he gave us all individual talents. The talents that he gives me are not necessarily the talents he gives you. Or for some people like me, I don't really have a whole lot of talents, but you might have one you're really good at. Obviously, we, there's somebody there that can play the piano. Um, I don't have that talent. I can pick out some keys and, you know, given maybe a month or two, I could, you know, maybe pass it something resembling a song but you wouldn't want to sing to it because then you have to have rhythm and all the other stuff that goes with it well there's all these other things that go on that are diverse so if you think of your church body there are people here who clean you may not even know who all of them are i know you're having a vacation bible school meeting coming up after this service do you know all the people that volunteer and do different things for vacation bible school and all the people that are involved that you know to bring it together i don't know i have no clue but I, I know this, it takes a lot of work to do those things. Um, this last week, we were at Camp Northwest, the junior camp, and they have lots of kids. I don't even remember. you remember how many kids it was? 150? More like 170. 170 kids. And that's, what, second to sixth grade, something like that? Yeah. And then you have all of the adults that have to come to be the people that are in the cabins with them in case of meltdowns. In case there's boo-boos and you have to take them to the nurse. Well, that, oh, wait, that means you have to have nursing. Well, in the, our case, there was two nurses there. Well, then you have to have people because it's hot out to make sure there's water everywhere. So there's another guy that was going around, driving around, making sure all the water was fi- filled up. And then you had the kitchen crew. That's the people that have to cook all the food. But it's not just kick all the food. They got to clean all the dishes. They got to clean all the pots and pans they cooked with. And then you need the administrative people. And then you need the people that have the junk shop or whatever snack shop, as they call it, where kids come in and, and can, you know, get loaded up on candy within certain limits. Um, it used to be they could, like, come out of there with, like, piles. Uh, they, they decided for the juniors, you kind of got to limit them down because it just doesn't work well. You know, they have a craft shop, so they need people that will go in there and, and work with these kids to do things with glue and all sorts of other stuff. Because let's face it, you leave a whole bunch of kids in there with glue, and things are going to happen. I may or may not have, in the first grade, glued the girl in front of me's hair to the front uh, to the back of her seat. And in my defense, maybe I was bored. I don't know what came over me. It's just Elmer's glue. Here's her hair during down, and... Something, I, I don't know what happened, right? I'm not really sure. Uh, you know, it, I don't know what happened. But if you have a craft shop with glue and all this and thing, cutting instruments, other stuff, you want some adult supervision there. Well, then you have these different events and races and all this other stuff. You have to have people there too. It takes a lot of work to do all of this. So imagine the context of having a party. Now, this party was in the best part of town. This is the king's area where he had all these animals he brought in from all the kingdom, all these different kinds of plants. It is the most beautiful place you could go into the town, and he invites everybody in the entire capital to come in and eat. Not only eat, they have what they call in the book of Esther's beds, but I want you to think of it as it's a place where 
I mean, this is Baptist paradise. You can sit and then you can just lay over and go to sleep all without having to move at all. I mean, there are some Baptists that I'm surprised they don't have this in their fellowship halls. You know, you get it. And just think about all this food and all this stuff. And here the king has made it. So everybody gets a unique, diverse cup. Because when God looks at you, he's looking at you, the diverse individual you are. He's not looking at, well, uh, you know, he's like all the other people in Ridgefield. Or she's like all the other people in Chehalis. Or pick the town or area that you live in. When God looks at us, he sees the individual. And all those skills, all those talents that he put in him, and then he's wanting to see, well, what's going to come of it? I mean, if you think with the potter, as in, uh, was it... Um, Romans chapter 9, 21, God is the potter and we are the clay. And he wants to mold us and conform us to something that he has the picture of that we don't see. And if you thought of yourself as being as the potter under that clay, you know, they're doing all sorts of things. I mean, the first thing they do is they take that big glop of thing and they just slam it down on that little spinny board thing, but whatever it's called. I don't know what the technical term is. You know, they probably had the little foot presses, you know, like this to make the thing go around and around. And then they use water and all this stuff to shape it and to pull it and to push it to get all these different shapes to make this diverse object. Well, it's the same thing in your life. God is using circumstances. God is using trials. God is using you putting yourself out there to mold and manipulate you to make you into a diverse creature. He does not want everybody in God's Word Baptist Church or Faith Baptist Church or anywhere else to be all cookie cutter to look all of the same and do the, all the exact things and talk the same way and do all that. Why? Because he made you unique. Our God is not a God that says everybody should be in this little square box and look exactly this way. If we take a look at everybody here tonight, guess what? You are not all wearing a suit with a tie tonight. That is a good thing. I wouldn't be wearing it either, except I need to kind of respect your pastor and respect the office of it. I'm doing it out of respect. But my per- this is not my personal choice of what I would wear. I would be in a pair of jeans and, you know, some some kind of a shirt. Maybe a polo, you know, so I'm, I got a collar, so it's, you know, better. But, you know, well, you know, you got to look at those Baptist distinctive kind of things. But But if you think about it from the diverse thing, that's what God wants to do with each one of us. He wants to use you, and sometimes it doesn't matter whether you're 4 years old, 40 years old, or 90 years old. There are things for you that God hasn't even showed you yet that he wants to do with you. You are not a finished creature. In fact, till the day you die, you're not a finished creature. And what the most sad thing at all is that we get at the judgment seat of Christ, and God shows you what you could have been if you would have allowed him to work on you. I think that's going to be one of the hardest parts of the judgment seat of Christ is we're going to see all the talents and all the capabilities that God gave us, and God's going to show us a picture of what we could have done if we would have listened. And then we look at ourselves, and it's like, you know what? You're going to look good. You're washed in the blood. But what could you have been? What could you have done? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, four, it says that we're supposed to know how to possess our vessel in sanctification and honor. If we're going to be a vessel meet for the master's use, we got to learn to control ourselves. And understanding, because if we don't, there may become a time where God says, you know what? I don't like the direction this little pot's going, so it's time to go like this and squish it all together and slam it back down and start all over again. 
I don't know about you, but I don't like my cart being upset. Uh, there's been a couple times, I'm one of those that likes to have plan A, B, C, and probably into at least G or H if I can manage it. And then, you know, about M is like, God, can you help me? I've ran out of all the ideas I can possibly do. And God's going, you know, if you would have started this at A being ask God for help, we would be getting through this whole pottery thing a lot faster with you. Uh, you know, but that's sometimes the difference of how fast are we becoming that vessel and understand some of those speed is not the issue. The issue is, do you get there? Uh, are you willing to be used? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, it talks about that. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor. We have the opportunity to choose how we're going to get used. We can be used for the master's use, and we can be a blessing and an encouragement and help and strength to so many people at different times in our lives. But you have to be, allow yourself to be used. See, the vessel's not for itself. The vessel is for others. God didn't put you here on this earth for you. He puts you here for others. And we don't always know who those others might be. They might be somebody on the side of the road holding the sign that says, you know, need food. You know, one time we were, uh, we had, I think, all of our kids in our Yukon XL because um, after you get enough little kids under a certain age, you can't put car seats in a minivan. I don't know if you ever tried that, but three car seats in that middle seat of a minivan is an exercise to bring out all the bad words you ever learned, plumbing or anything else. So we had to move up to, well, and we had, you know, six kids. So you have to do the math. And so we ended up with a Yukon. Well, one time we're going through there. And I don't know if you know, but I grew up in the Dakotas. I think I said that before. And there was a guy there, it was an older gentleman, and he had a sign basically saying he was going back to North Dakota and he needed help. And he had a plate that said North Dakota on it. So I was like, okay. And uh, so we we went over and we stopped and we talked to him. And he's like, basically, he came out west for a job. The job ended up not being what it was. And he didn't have enough money to get back home. So we're like, you know, have you eaten? He says, no. I said, okay, let's go. Let's go over to McDonald's. They had a little, one of those half-size, quickie McDonald's inside of a gas station. We took him over there and bought him a whole bunch of stuff and said, here, now we're going to fill your car up with gas. We'll get you full. You got any gas cans? We'll fill them up and we'll send you on your way. Now, the, the, here's the hard part. Who knows if that was an angel unawares? And that was just a trial. Was that a trial for our kids to see how should you treat somebody? What are you going to do in that situation? Ask the God for wisdom. I'm, you know, now I will say this. If you got one that says, I can't lie, I just need beer or drugs. Those aren't the people you need to help. It's the people that say, I need food. And, and I've, we've had them. It was like the next day we're out with the kids and I need food, blah, blah, blah. It's like, hey, come on, let's go to McDonald's. I'll buy you whatever you want on the menu. Went over there. Guess what? He never showed up. That wasn't what he wanted. That wasn't what he wanted. But see, the Bible is pretty clear about that. If you don't work, you don't what? Eat. I have no problems helping somebody up, but I'm not here to give you a handout. Uh, you know, if you're having a tough time and you need to eat, hey, I want to help you. But if you're, if you're there willfully because you want to be that way, go right ahead. Uh, that's not how God as, wants your vessel to be. Notice another thing that said or talks about drinking was according to the law. Why? I don't know. We don't have this as much in our culture as some places. If you're in an oriental culture and you're in business, you're expected to go to parties at night and you're expected to drink alcohol. Every time they do a toast, you're supposed to do it along with the boss and everybody else. 
It's mandatory. It's not optional. So if you're a Christian over there and your boss says you need to come out here, you're going to have to make a decision real quick whose side you're on. And whatever it is, you're going to have to need to stick with it, or otherwise it's not going to mean anything. Uh, contrary, uh, you know, one of the things to look at is like when you're in the military and you go out with all your buddies and they have, you know, whatever their little sayings are from the German and everything else and Einstein and all the other things and you're drinking and all that stuff. It's, it is pressure to get somebody to conform and go along with it. And what the king is saying here now, I'm not putting pressure on anybody to drink. If they want to drink, they can drink. And if they don't, they don't have to. Because in a lot of those cultures, the oriental cultures, if the king or made, anybody made sign some kind of address, you were expected to drink. And if you didn't, they'd be like off with your head. You're, you're not doing, you're not playing right with everybody. And the king says, that's not how we're going to do it. We're going to do it for the law. In Proverbs chapter 31, it talks about O Lemuel, the king, and it says, it is not for kings to drink wine or for princes to drink strong drink. Guess what? If you're a child of God, you're a prince. That's not for you. And believe me, I know what the thing is. I was in the Navy and I was a good alcoholic Navy sailor. I know all about alcohol. I've seen people where we've gone out drinking and they have had the inability to wake them up. Uh, we've gone out one time and we went out to their car and our buddy went out to the car before us. He was locked in the car, so drunk we couldn't get him to unlock it. Uh, we've had one guy that had to go to the hospital um, because of uh, alcohol poisoning. It's not that nice little simple picture that they show in all the Bud Light, com- well, maybe not Bud Light commercials right now, uh, the other ones on TV. I don't have TV, so I can't watch them anyways. But nonetheless, is they have all these commercials showing, hey, we're all having a fun and all a great time. Yeah, they don't tell you about all the money you're spending. They don't tell about the health impact. They don't tell you about all the fact that people are throwing their guts up and heaving, and yet, oh, no, it's a great time. You just need to keep doing it, enjoy it, all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, there's pleasure in sin for a season. You might enjoy it, but pretty soon, the drink takes the man. Pretty soon, that's controlling you. Um, can you imagine? Have you ever thought what it must have been like to be invited to the special area where this king had this party going on. The closest thing I can think of is this. Someday God's going to call you home with the trumpet or otherwise, and you're going to get to go to Eden, the garden of God, and you're going to get to see some beauty with eyes that have never seen. You're going to hear some things that no ear has ever heard. You're going to experience things that your brain right now as a human being could never even deal with. That's what God has set ahead for you in the future. So this in this picture in this party in a lot of ways I want you to think about it, has a prophetical thing that's going to happen to the church when he calls us all home because there's going to be that yes there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ and that's where we're going to make an account of what we did in the flesh how we did it why we did it those kinds of things but after that it's time to get married and then there's going to be a party the marriage supper of the lamb and that think about what that's going to be like when the God the Father His son is getting married. Think about what kind of wedding and all the things that are going to go on with that. Think of all the planning that go on now for wedding. Can you imagine what a heavenly one's going to be like? Uh, One thing also remember is during this time, the men and women were separated. That's another problem with alcohol. 
Why? Because it reduces down people's inhibitions. It gets them to do things they wouldn't normally do. It'll get them to say things they would not normally say. There's a reason for it. If you don't think so, go watch the old Willy Wonka show that I used to watch as a kid. There's a little line in there that says, candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. In a kid's show. In a kid's show. Uh, notice uh, on top of that, there were in verse 9, it goes on and it says, And Vashti the queen made the feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So all the ladies, they had a separate thing, which is probably a good thing, because if you had some men and they were under the influence, keeping all the ladies away from them is probably a really good idea. But on top of that, notice that the queen has her own thing going on here. And then on verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, yeah, I'm going to butcher these names, just, you know, just let you know ahead of time. Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and yeah, the rest of them. And the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king. So this is the inner court. These are the seven most trusted, loyal servants of the king. There's these seven of them. The king's in there. He's in this party. It's been going on seven days. And I talked about earlier this Sunday uh, morning. It has a tribulation type context and influence to tell you about what's coming on in the future. And it says here that with these, uh, these seven chamberlains are serving the king. It says, verse 11, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the croin royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. So the king, who had probably been newly married to Vashti the queen, he's in this, he's doing all this party. He's got all these people there. And he says, you know what? I want you to bring the queen out, but I want you to have her put on all of her fancy garments with all the jewelry and all the other stuff and come bring her into the court so everybody else can see the queen. Uh, I would say this. I know this is a, this is a hard thing, but I'm going to say it anyways. If you're a guy and you're married, you should appreciate your wife and you should be thankful for her. And you should be thankful not only for who she is, but what she is. That she chose you for whatever reason. And let's just face it, some women are stupid. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. I mean, and some guys are stupid too. I, I mean, I've seen it go both ways. But there's somebody who's decided at some point in time in a Christian walk that she's decided she wants to hook her wagon up with you and follow you and be a help meet with you and help you become a better man. Praise the Lord for that. And if you have one of those ladies, you are blessed by the Lord to have one of those ladies. Because there are a lot of ladies out there that are all about themselves. It's never about being a helpmeet. Because let's face it, today's society doesn't want to talk about what the Bible says a woman should be. Which is what? A helpmeet. That means the man is the head of the household. It is not a democracy. It isn't for polling votes Now, I will say this. Any guy who doesn't ask his wife for help or suggestions is an idiot. I mean, let's just call it for what it is. Because there's a lot of times your wife may know a lot of things, more about certain things going on than you. And forget even the kids. Just talk about life things. You, Any man that has any wisdom at all is going to go and try to get that wisdom for whoever he is can. And his wife is a a perfect candidate uh, for that. And we also see on this that obviously she was... He was proud of her. Now, let's just face it. In the Bible, proud is not a good word. It's not a good word. It's not a Christian word we should use. I know there are times that you, you kind of want to use say proud. I'm going to give you what I think is the closest thing Christian-wise. Thankful. Thankful. I'm thankful that all of my kids presently right now are not in jail. 
They are all, they all have jobs. Well, except for the youngest who still lives at home and just graduated. But, you know, we're going to work on that. Uh, just give her some time. But I am thankful. Why? Because it doesn't matter who you are as a parent is and all the failings and flaws that you're going to make as a parent, because you will, and all the successes you have as a parent, that you, and you'll have some, your kids can go who knows which way because they're their own individual. They're going to make their own decisions. And it's a great thing to be thankful when you can go to the Lord in prayer and you say, Lord, thank you for my wife. Because I know there are some times that, you know, it, it was probably a great trial of tribulation for her to have to, you know, deal with me and put up with me and maybe not say something that she really wanted to say or, you know, kick you under the table or whatever else it is. Um, it's also the same thing with the Lord when you're, you know, Lord, I want to thank you that all my kids can work. They know how to work. Praise God. Because I know some kids that you couldn't get a lick's worth of work out of if you had, you know, all summer. That's a shame. Christians ought to know how to work. Uh, one thing that I appreciated is uh, my daughter went down to Pensacola and she was applying for a job. And she was talking to the lady over the phone. And the person who was doing the hiring, the boss came by and, and somehow the discussion of that, she went to this certain church. Because she went to that certain church, that owner said, hire her. She had just moved out from Washington. Doesn't know hardly anybody there. That's the testimony that should be. By the way, it was a 100 years ago, if you were a Methodist, you could walk into a bank and say, I'm a Methodist, and they would give you a loan on the spot. No other questions asked. Try that today. That's not going to work. But we as Christians, one of the things that we should is we should have a good testimony about how we work and how we do things. Um, the next thing that we notice here is that Vashti decides to refuse the king's command in verse 12. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore, the king was very wroth and his anger burned in him. I will say this. One thing you don't want is a drunk who is mad. Because they're out of their minds and they are capable of anything. Physical abuse, verbal abuse. It's You don't even have an idea what they're capable of. Nor do I. By the way, Christian, saved, lost makes no difference. Anything a lost person do, a Christian can do. Period. I've done some of those. And I'm ashamed of it, but it's the truth. In 1 John chapter 3.22... It says that we're supposed to love one another because why? Christ died for us. If your husband came and said, honey, I want you to come with me, you should be willing to go. Why? Because he loves you. If the, if the Lord comes up and knocks on your heart and says, I'd like you to come and go do something for me, your heart should be, yes, Lord, I'm willing to go. Why? Because he loves you. Love should be the motivation of how we do things. Um, some other things that we see here in Esther chapter, uh, verse 13, it says, uh, chapter one, verse 13, then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times for so was the king's manner towards all that knew the law and judgment. And the next said unto him was this big, long list of people that, you know, the seven princes of Medesia and Persia, which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. Verse 15, what shall we do? Unto Queen Vashti, according to the law, because she hath not performed the commandment of the king, Ahasuerus, by the chamberlains. 
And then they bring up the thing. It's basically, here's the problem, king. It's not just that she rebelled and she's not coming for you. She's teaching everybody else around, don't listen to your husband. And then what's going to happen? There's going to be nothing but problems. And I'm not saying that just because your husband says it, it's necessarily right. I'm not saying that. Your husband is going to make mistakes. If you if you get married to a husband, your husband is going to make some decisions that you would go, yep, he's an idiot. That's That's the only conclusion I can come to, right? And there's some other times he's going to make great ones. Don't get me wrong. But the thing is, what is God's commandment to you as the wife? He uses one word to describe the problem that a woman has towards a husband, and it's called submit. It was true in the Old Testament. It's true today, and it'll be true in the future. The wife's biggest problem in a marital relationship is one word, and it's submit. Now, guys, don't think you got off easy here. Here's the other one. God has one for you too, guys. You know what it is? Love your wife. Why? Because there's some times that she may not necessarily always be the most lovable. There may be times that she goes through stuff that you're like, well, I love her, Lord, but God says, no, there's no buts. You got to love her. Because if you want to play the whole bug game, he's just going to sit there and talk to you and he's going to go, look, there's some stuff that you do that's not lovable either. Do you want to start, you know, doing tally marks here and see how this matches up? It's like, no. But here's the other thing. What's the other commandment to the husband? Dwell of and knowledge. But even more important than that is you need to follow him. You need to follow him. If we as husbands would keep our hearts right towards the Lord, all the rest of it will work out, and your wife will not have a problem submitting to you. If you keep your heart right towards the Lord, you won't have a problem loving your wife. Because every time she does something that irritates you, frustrates you, you get upset about, Lord's just going to remind you a little bit, yeah, what about you? What about this time that you denied you know me? What about this time you rejected me? Or how about, let's talk about all the times you rejected me before you got saved. All those kinds of things. And so when they go through this, uh, obviously, um, I'm not going to go into it, but there's a whole bunch of stuff with times and the seasons and other stuff that we could bring out here. Uh, but as we continue on, uh, verse 17, For this deed of the queen shall come abroad to all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes, when it shall be reported. I want you to notice that. Despise their husband in where? In their eyes. Ladies, watch your eyes. It is very easy, male or female, to allow emotions to come out of your eyes that are wrong. You need to control your vessel. You need to be careful what you're allowing your eyes to say. Because it can be one of those, I'm saying the right things with my lips, but my eyes are telling a whole different message. Because, I mean, if you don't think so, just go downstairs on Sunday morning and watch some of the kids. You'll learn everything you need to know about, you know, there, there's probably some little boy down there going, you know, you're telling them to sit down. He's like, I'll sit down, but inside I'm standing up. Right? We have the adult version of that. We really do. As we continue on here, on top of that, when it, the king keeps going that, they decide to get rid of her. 
and they do a royal commandment to get rid of Vashti, and then they're going to go out through all the kingdom, and they're going to say, hey, we need to go out and find a new bride for the king. So every lady here who is unmarried between the age of probably 12 and 30-something, they would have just come through and picked you up and taken you off. So you two back there, you'd be in shoe-shash in the palace, doing the whole purification thing for a year. Imagine being in your household where you're loved by your mom and dad, and you're gone. This is out of the entire kingdom, as I described before. India to Ethiopia. You're being dragged off to some place that you may not even understand the language that they're speaking, the culture that they have, anything else as a young lady, and you're taken there and you're set up in this, in this house of the king, and then you have to do all this stuff for a year before you ever even see the king. Can you imagine the fear? I mean, who knows how long it took if you were on the east side of India and you had to take the wagon train all the way to Shushan the palace. That wasn't a short ride. Think of what the position of these young ladies would be. How fearful and scary it must have been. And because you could have been out in a village with, you know, 15 people in your village. You know, it's basically your entire family and that's all that lives there. And everybody knows everybody. And then you get moved on and now you're in a capital that has a hundred, five hundred thousand, a million people in it. And you hear them talking, but you have no clue what they're saying. They're asking you to do stuff and you don't know what they're asking you to do. Now I'm sure they probably had a lot of people there as interpreters, but you have to know there had to be some people that came from some places. They had some bizarre Indian dialect that nobody knew. And it's like, okay, we're going to have to teach each other some common language here. And that's what they had to go through and how difficult that must have been. Um, if we continue on here, it says uh, in verse, um, well, let's, see, let's go down to verse 22. For he sent letters unto all the king's provinces and to every province according to the writing thereof and to every people after their language that every man should bear rule in his own house and it should be published according to the language of every people. Can you imagine the work it would take to have 120-some provinces in that area and sit down and write a command out in every person's language and then send it out by post. Uh, that'd be like the U.S. postal system, and you send it on its way. Think of all the teams of people that had to work to write this and, and change it into whatever these languages are and then send it off. Because this wasn't like, you know, click, send. Um, this wasn't like get out your phone and click, send. And then if you're now, you can go, oh, I can edit it now. I can edit it and make up for all my mistakes. Or if it's one of those, you speak into it and it, it gets some weird idea, you know, you edit it. Well, think about this. They're writing it on paper. You make a mistake, guess what you do? You crumple it all up, throw it away, and you start rewriting the whole thing until it's perfect. And then you're sending it out. That's what's going on here. Imagine the amount of work and the number of people that had to do all of these different languages. Um. If we continue on, uh, that's the end of Esther chapter 1. But I want you to go back and think about the fact that already in Esther chapter 1, this, this small book, this small chapter, that there's a lot of other things going on there that we can see have an influence to the future. I want you to think about the judgment seat of Christ how many Christians are going to show up at the judgment seat of Christ and find out as far as it comes to a vessel, they've accomplished nothing. You know what's even worse than that? 
Think of all the pastors who are mommy and daddy called pastors that God never told to be a pastor. Think of all the pastors out there that deny God's word and try to help God out and explain to him what God meant when he said this. And they're going to have to show up before the king and make an account for their actions. If it was fearful enough for these people all the way dealing back here with Shushan the palace and King Ahasuerus, what is it going to be like to show up before the king of kings and lord of lords and give an account for yourself? Guess what? gets worse than that. Are you a husband here? You get to give an account for your family. It's your problem. All the failings, flaws, all that stuff, it's yours. But it's even worse than that. Brother Ken, Pastor Ken Stewart, from a spiritual sense, he's going to be held accountable to how he fed you, what he gave you. Now, what you did with it, that's your problem, right? God's going to talk to you about that. But God's going to talk to him about, hey, did you feed my sheep? Did you give them what they needed to encourage them, to strengthen them, to correct them, to guide them? All these different things that God wants us to do. Well, God's going to hold him accountable too. He's not going to hold me accountable for all of your spiritual welfare. But if you come to this church, he's going to hold brothers to it for that. Like I said, it's not that you all, it's not whether or not you all did what he told you to do. That's a personal choice. But did he feed you? Did he invest his time and his resources in you? Yes, he's going to be judged for that and given rewards. Because there are many, I mean, however much we like it or not. And none of us wants to see Brother Stewart, what he's going through right now. Uh, Right now, he's in the ER waiting to probably have another surgery. Right now. None of us wants that for him. Uh, I mean, I don't know anybody that would even dislike him that much to want him to have to go through all of this stuff. I don't know the reasons for all that. All I can do is pray for him. But I will say this, God will get the glory out of it. There will be good that come out of it. One of the things is, is it requires a lot of other people to stand up and do some things they're not used to. You know, there's a lot of people here in this church that have over this last, but almost year now, have had to stand up and help out and fill in the gap and stand in the gap and do all these other things to help out. Praise God. You know what that shows? That shows when he's been preaching and teaching that you guys got it, that you understand those things. Right after this service, I guess there's a VBS meeting, you know, Vacation Bible School. That's where you invite all the hoodlums and the, I mean, all the kids in the neighborhood. And you're going to try to teach them some spiritual things, just like Pastor Stewart tries to teach you. You're just trying to pass on the little bit that you've learned. It's like an old saying, uh, one of the pastors I knew used to say, all I am is a beggar telling another beggar where the food is. That's it. I'm nothing special in and of myself. I'm just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. All we're trying to do is if we're saved as we're Christians, we're trying to point them to the book. Because it's got all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I can't tell you why Brother Stewart's just getting rung through. You know, it probably one of those old washing machines, you know, that had the two dowels that went across and you went like this and he squeezed the clothes. That's the closest thing I can think to of an illustration of what he's going through. I don't know why, but I know this. God will get praise and glory out of it. And someday down the road, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to go, I understand now, Lord. 
And it maybe it won't be until God calls us home that we understand it. But God is going to get glory out of it. God is going to see and use it to do some good stuff. God's going to, there's probably some people right here now that had this not happened. You might just sit in the pew and not do anything at all. Just be a passive Christian. But it's an opportunity for you to step up and say, hey, how can I help out? What can I do to help? That's a good thing because when we're all healthy and we're all doing good, we don't think about those things. You know, we don't think about all the things that go on in a pastor's life, the calls that he gets in the middle of the night saying, hey, pastor, can you come pray with me? Uh, can you help me? This thing's going on with my kid. My kid's in the hospital. My kid was just in a car accident and he lives, you know, 3,000 miles away. Can you please pray with me and help me? Can you give me some comfort? Can you give me all these different things? It's, it's, it's one of those things. God then takes that, what he gives out to you, and he wants you to take it and to give it to somebody else. He wants you to take what you've learned out of this book and give it to somebody else. That salvation that you got, the Bible tells us we're supposed to work it out with fear and trembling. Why? Because let's face it, when you go to witness people, not everybody's happy to see you. Not everybody's excited like, oh, please tell me how to get to heaven. Now, there are a few people who are. Um, I've had one of those one time. I went up to him. It's like, um, I went to him. Do you know where you're going to go to when you die? No. Would you like to know? Yes. I actually, I had stood there shocked. I was like, I can't believe anybody actually just said yes. You know, sometimes you get those. But whether or not they're accepting of you or not doesn't matter. God just wants you to cast the seed out there and let him do whatever he's going to do with it. Because let's face it, there are a lot of people out there, and you probably know some some that did not get saved the first time they were witness to, or the first time they got attracted, or the first time they went to church, or the first time they went to BBS. Some people are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. Some people know the verses to get saved better than you do. The only difference is they've never done it. Uh, one pastor I knew one time said he was out uh, just walking across the street in his new neighborhood and moved into. There was a guy working on a car. I went over and talked to him a little bit, started witnessing to him. And he's like, this guy like knows all the verses. And he's like, so are you saved? And the guy said, no. And he says, do you want to be? And the guy says, yes. And the pastor was like, what? And he's like, yes, I want to be saved. And I said, and then he he was he didn't even know what to say because he was so shocked. The guy dropped down there and started praying right in front of him. He didn't even have to tell him what to do. The guy already knew what to do. He just needed somebody to ask him. Just needed somebody to ask him. Now, unfortunately, that's not everybody that you meet. Some of them are going to get upset. You're going to pass them out a tract, and they're going to crumple it up and throw it at you. Uh, maybe you're out in the street and you're at a parade or something else, and they may spit on you. May they do all this stuff. Why? Well, it's no different than in Jesus' time. Let's just face it. Not everybody was excited about him being around. I mean, can you imagine that? Here's the guy that you can bring any sick relative that you have to him. He can heal them on the spot, and yet they hated him. That blows my mind. That blows, I mean, and I know I'd probably be one of them. You know, I'd probably find something to complain about. That's That's just me. But what it must have been like to have somebody that you wept over and you loved and you cared for and there was no hope. And then you hear this guy, you hear about this miracle worker and you can take him to him. 
that's all we're trying to do is one beggar bringing another beggar to the food. We're just trying to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this time in Esther chapter 1. I thank you for each person here, Lord, that you would minister to them, help them, encourage them, strengthen them, bless them. Lord, we we talked about uh, your word tonight, your book. And so each person here, Lord, please bless them. Please give them what they need for this next week. Pray for Pastor Stewart, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would now give him the comfort and the peace that he so needs, Lord. Help the doctors to get his pain dealt with. Uh, help the Lord just please let this be the last time he has to go to the ER. Please let this be the last time that he has to go through all of this, Lord, and not let it linger on and continue on. Uh, please, Lord, give him the victory, and we will give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor, because you deserve it. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and through his blood. Amen.